this morning, I will warn you, last week, I let you out early, unintentionally. I thought I had held you three minutes too long, but actually, I let you out 12 minutes early. I looked back at the clock, and I thought, oh, i got to hurry up. i got a lot to say, so I'm rushing through the message, and as soon as I said I, I gave, let you out three minutes late, I looked at some of your faces, and I realized... I don't think I let them out late. I think I must have let them out early. So I'm going to make up for it today, and I'm going to preach 12 minutes longer. Not, hopefully not really. Uh, actually, I do want to share with you something that is uh, uh, really important to me, and it is uh, the foundation of what we believe, and it is the foundation of everything that we are. Uh, some of you probably noticed we have a stone that's sitting here in front of the pulpit this morning, and this is the original cornerstone that was used as a part of the old church building, which was located over on College Avenue. Uh, this was previously this church was previously known as Second Wesleyan Methodist Church, and it was actually uh, um, a a strong presence in the community for a long time. And back in the '80s, this church made the move to this location, and we became Trinity Wesleyan Church. But that cornerstone represents incredible things. Uh, there were some great things that happened, and there were a lot of people who helped to make this church possible. There were some who gave financially, there were some who served faithfully, and there were some who gave of their time and their energy. But they are not the reason that this church exists today. We exist solely because of Christ crucified. He is our true cornerstone. I confess that today's message will not be as I planned uh, this week. In fact, I can assure you that the outlines in your bulletin, for those of you who pay attention to the outline, I got to tell you, it's not going to be right today. And part of the reason, I've been here for five years, and I have never felt led to change my sermon at the last minute. It's not really last minute, but last night, probably about 11 o'clock, I felt as though what I was sharing was not what the Lord wanted me to share. It's the, although it's the first time it's happened, there is a reason for that. Um, obviously, the first reason is that I believe that this is the message that God wants me to preach. But it's also because over the past seven days, I have had four different people, not just individuals outside the church, but even from inside the church, I've had four different people admit to me that they do not know the full story of Christ. They know bits and pieces, but not the full story of Christ. Well, if he is our true cornerstone, then shouldn't we know the story of Christ better than anything else that we know? I'm afraid that the church has been reduced to a voting block or some a uh, community group that's fighting against injustice or some keeper of moral standards. It's not that those things are necessarily bad. It's good to fight against injustice, and it's good to call people back to holiness. But our first and clearest message ought to always be about who Jesus Christ is. So today, I want to share with you the story of Christ still going to use the same passage that I had planned, but I'm going to present it in a different way. So if you would, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 
chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 19 to 22. This passage is written by the Apostle Paul, and as he is addressing the church, he is in many ways addressing what our foundation ought to be. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, and it says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Within this passage, we see a sense of unity and family. It's as if those who were on the outside looking in are being relocated to the inside looking out. It reminds me of an image that I experienced in one of our first trips to Haiti. By the way, speaking of Haiti, I was just telling some folks, I called this week to uh, uh, get malaria pills just in preparation. We're leaving March the 8th, so we're trying to get all the details taken care of. So I called my doctor and asked for malaria pills, and she asked where we were going. I said, well, we're going to Haiti. And she said, now, now when is it that you're going to Hades? I said, well, the plan is not to go to Hades anytime soon. The plan is to go to Haiti, although it may feel as hot in Haiti as it does in Hades. But anyways, one of the first times we went to Haiti, um, it was uh, an incredible opportunity for us to worship with the Haitian people. And on Sunday morning, we got up and we went to church. But going to church was a little bit different. The only way to get to the village where we would worship was by boat. So we took a two-hour boat ride to church on Sunday morning. We get there and the service has already begun, but they were already expecting us. We walked to where the church was and we had an incredible time of worship. After the service was over, we had fellowship, especially with the kids, because they just love to see American people. And we hung out and we just enjoyed the kids. But after a while, they began to usher us away from the church building. Now, this was a very poor village. There were probably only two solid structure buildings in the community. One was the church. The other was a particular house. The rest of them, it was not unusual to see homes that were made basically of two sticks and a tarp. There wasn't a whole lot to it. They ushered us to this other solid structure building, and they had prepared a meal for us. Now, we were warned ahead of time that we were not allowed to refuse any of the food that was offered, as that would be viewed as rude and offensive. So we were prepared for that. What we weren't prepared for was the food was amazing. Actually, they made us, it was called conch soup. You guys know what a conch shell is. Well, they took the fish that was inside of the shell and they made soup with it. And I'm going to tell you, it was the most amazing food that I had had in a very long time. As I was telling that to the missionary, my thought is, I'm going to go back and get seconds. Well, he told me you're not allowed to. The reason was this. As we sat inside that building, as we were eating the conch soup, none of the Haitians joined us. 
Instead, they all sat on the outside of the building, peeking in the windows, watching to make sure that we were enjoying it. And they sat there watching us eat the entire time. The reason the missionary didn't want us to get seconds, he said, if you get seconds, more than likely someone in this community will not eat. And therefore, we could only get one helping. You know, there's a part of me that says nothing about that situation was comfortable. Whether you were on the inside or you were on the outside. On the inside, you're trying to eat and you're enjoying your meal. But at the same time, there's this part of you that feels awkward because all these other people are sitting there watching you eat. On the outside, there was a sense of, man, I I think that I would love to be on the inside. Well, the reality is there are many who are on the outside and they are looking in, wishing that they could come and be on the inside. Our passage seems to suggest that something changes in us. It says we're no longer strangers, we're no longer on the outside, but we are now fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. Earlier in our service, we had the opportunity to celebrate the transformation that has happened in Tim's life. Tim has moved from the outside to where now he is on the inside. There is a sense of a rite of passage that goes with the act of baptism. The reality is the moment Tim gave his heart to Christ, he was already a part of the family of God. But now by baptism, he also has participated in something that many of us have participated in as well. I will tell you that Tim's story didn't start here. Actually, God began to work in him long before you saw him up here this morning. Actually, Betty Ryan, six months before Tim showed up to church here, Betty Ryan had someone working on her house, just doing some maintenance stuff, and she said, you should come to my church. He said, oh yeah, I think I will. And then it didn't happen, and then it didn't happen until one day... This guy shows up in our foyer, and he doesn't even remember the name of the lady who invited him to church. We're standing there talking, and sure enough, here comes Betty Ryan walking up. He says, that's her! (laughs) The reality is, many people have played a role to get Tim to the place where he is today, but the reality is that his journey is not over, but now he does it from the inside. He's no longer on the outside looking in. The act of baptism serves multiple purposes. On one hand, it serves as a testimony to the saving work that God has already done in each of us. The moment Tim decided to pursue Christ, he became a child of God, but in baptism, he gets to tell the world, I am a new creation. I have been made new. But there's also the aspect of the rite of passage. This is initially a Jewish practice. Consider the fact that John the Baptist, prior to Jesus Christ dying on the cross, John the Baptist was already baptizing individuals. But it certainly became expected of the New Testament believer. Consider the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch that I referenced earlier. 
It's found in Acts chapter 8, and I'm going to read a section of it to you. The Lord sends Philip on an, out on a desert road where he finds an Ethiopian eunuch from Queen Candace's court. He's come to Jerusalem to worship, but he has so many questions. He's reading a passage from Isaiah, and in Acts 8.29, we see an interesting encounter take place. It says this, The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. The passage says that Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news of Jesus Christ. And today, I want to do the same thing with you. As Isaiah the prophet writes, the people of Israel were already in need of redemption. They were a broken people who constantly found themselves struggling with the draw towards sin. The sacrificial system that God had put in place seemed to do nothing more than remind them of their own inadequacy. No matter what they did, they always needed another sacrifice. But this passage points to one who would come and would pay the price for all of our sins. He would be the living sacrifice for you and me. Although it would take more than 400 years to see this prophecy fulfilled, it would be perfectly fulfilled through a man named Jesus the Christ. Jesus would be born to a young virgin named Mary, but the child growing inside her was not conceived the way other children are conceived. You see, the prophet also wrote that the virgin will be with child. And exactly as the prophet had stated, it happened. The Spirit of God came upon her, and she bore a son. Even his birth was a big deal. Although he was born in the most humble of circumstances, there were angels who announced his birth, and even kings who came to pay honor to this baby who was being born, just as the Jewish scriptures had foretold. He grew up like any other Jewish young man, circumcised on the eighth day, and taught early to be in the temple. But there was something very different about this Jesus. Even as a young boy, he amazed even the religious leaders. On one occasion, his parents came looking for him and found him in the temple, surrounded by all the teachers of the law. But they weren't teaching him. They were listening. He was teaching. There aren't many records of his childhood, but at about the age of 30, 
we see him start to turn the world upside down. Initially, we see him being baptized by John the Baptist, and then, wow, he becomes perhaps the most amazing man in all of creation. He spoke with such incredible authority that everyone began to take notice of him. It was so different from the teachers of the law. Hundreds, even thousands of people would gather to hear him preach, but it was more than just his preaching. He could do things that nobody else could do. He calmed storms. He walked on the water. He fed thousands of people with only a few fish and a handful of bread. And even more than that, he had the ability to heal the sick and even raise the dead. Everywhere Jesus went, people wanted to be with him. But even fame can be a burden. Eventually, the religious rulers, the Pharisees, they would become jealous as people were listening to Jesus instead of them. They feared the loss of power and authority, so they conspired to have Jesus killed. And it worked. Although Jesus had demonstrated his ability to do the impossible, he offered no defense and he willingly was killed. His death was one of the cruelest deaths imaginable. It wasn't like he was stoned or he was run through with a sword or shot with an arrow. That would be too quick. The Romans were incredibly skilled at punishing criminals. Not only did they take great pleasure in making the individual suffer, but making them do it for long periods of time. They also would turn it into a spectacle that all of society could see. Sure, some people saw Jesus and they wept over this man who had done so much good being tortured and killed. But there were others who hurled insults at him, even mocking him as he hung on that old wooden cross. Still, Jesus remained silent. Well, he did say a few things. One in particular While he suffered, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Surely this man was humble in his birth, and even more so in his death. Remember that passage from the book of Isaiah? Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. In essence, he became the sacrificial lamb that would pay the price for all of our sins. He was perfect in every way. Surely he could have stopped this crucifixion anytime he wanted, but he chose not to do so. As he prayed to the Father the night that he was arrested, he prayed, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Yet nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Surely the... the, The thought of crucifixion and abuse and mocking and rejection, even by the people that he had helped, was not something that was attractive, but it was something he was willing to do because he came to pay the price for our sins. But get this, just when the story seemed to be over, the unexpected happened. A few days After Christ's crucifixion, some of the ladies went to the tomb, 
They intended to anoint him for his proper burial, but they found that Jesus was no longer dead. He had been raised back to life. In the days that would follow, Jesus would appear to hundreds of people. On one occasion, he would appear to more than 500 people all at the same time. He would appear to a couple of guys walking down the road. He would show up on the seashore. He would even show up in locked rooms to encourage his followers not to give up. As Philip would have told this story, he likely was one who had seen the resurrected Christ himself. He is one of the initial seven that are appointed to help with taking care of some of the leadership needs within the early church, and it is likely that he himself had witnessed the resurrected Christ. As he spoke, as one who confidently knew that Christ truly had been resurrected, this Ethiopian eunuch would have heard and he would have known what he is saying is not fiction. This is absolutely true. What all this means is that Jesus has paid the price of your sins and my sins when he died on that cross. But more than that, he also conquered death when he was resurrected back to life. And now we have no reason to fear death after being seen on many occasions following the resurrection. Jesus ascended into heaven. And now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the day will come that he will come back for those who place their trust in him. Jesus declared in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. But until that day comes... Christ has promised us his Holy Spirit. You know, one of Jesus' promises was that the Holy Spirit would come upon us and we would do even greater things than what Jesus had already done. Well, as Philip would have explained that, he could testify what he had personally seen firsthand. People were being healed. Miracles were continuing. The power of God was as real today as it was when Jesus was physically with us. And I assure you today that the same power of God is present and he still desires to work among his people. Nothing has changed. But I wonder, is Jesus real to you today? And I told you at the beginning today that the church exists solely because of the cross of Jesus Christ, and I absolutely mean that. This is demonstrated in a passage that's found in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. The author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. He talks about this great cloud of witnesses, but who is he talking about? To answer that question, we need to go back to Hebrews 11. Sometimes we refer to this passage as the faith chapter, as we read stories of individuals who exercised great faith, people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Samson and David and all these other individuals. 
These are the great cloud of witnesses. They were often broken, always less than perfect. Looking at that list that I just shared with you, we see murderers, we see adulterers, we see prostitutes, we see liars, we see cowards, we see cheats, but we also see people who would eventually put their faith and their trust in God. And they would find incredible meaning and purpose in their lives. And they would become incredible world changers. Let me read the rest of that passage there from Hebrews 12 for a minute. It says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Know that the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. It is not a godly grandmother. It is not a godly earthly father. It's not even all these saints from the Old Testament. Our cornerstone, our hope is built on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is the chief cornerstone. I was reading yesterday about one of the early church fathers. His name was Ignatius. And he lived until about 107 AD. Although he likely never knew Jesus in the flesh, he was about 70 years old when he dies, which means he was born about the time that Jesus would have been crucified. But he did know some of the disciples personally. In fact, it is believed that one of his primary mentors would have been the apostle John who just about 10 years earlier would have, been, would have died on the Isle of Patmos. Ignatius would become known as the Bishop of Antioch, and he would eventually be killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. But as he neared his death, he didn't want to simply be known as a martyr. He didn't want the people to only know how to die for Christ. He wanted them to know how to live for Christ. Christianity was being threatened from the outside with persecution and half-truths intended to discourage others from joining this faith in Christ. In addition, there were those within the Christian family who were sowing seeds of discord. His instructions would be vital to the future of the church. So he wrote seven letters to different churches that he would pass on his way to Rome, where he knew that he would likely be killed. In these letters, he would summarize the faith and what is most important. Let me highlight a couple of truths that come from that. The first thing that he teaches is that the cross must be central to our faith. He said that the greatest thing Jesus did was to die for our sins and that we must Die into his sufferings. That means that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him, regardless of what it costs us. Second, the cross must be central to the Christian proclamation of the gospel. As a community of the redeemed, the ministry life of the church is shaped by the crucifixion. Ignatius pictures the cross as a crane lifting living stones into the temple of God. 
It is this cross-shaped congregation that is regularly reformed around the broken body and the blood at the Lord's table, proclaiming that the Lord's death has come, but that life now is available to us. Today, we are going to participate in a celebration of the Lord's Supper. But as we do so, the purpose is not merely to go through a ritual of the church. Surely, Jesus instructed his disciples to remember his death. At their last meal, as they gathered together, he took the bread and he said, This represents my body that is broken for you. He took the wine, he said, This represents my blood that is shed for you. He instructed them, every time you eat this, every time you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Today, we are going to fulfill in obedience what he instructed his disciples. But I want you to recognize today that this is not about a church service. That This is not about a ritual of the church. This is about remembering the cross of Jesus Christ. This was not some cheap sacrifice where Jesus was asked to give up something, so he reached in his pocket and he gave something up that was useless, something that didn't matter. Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life for you and for me. That is a great sacrifice. As we participate in this act of communion this morning, I challenge you to simply reflect on what difference his sacrifice has made for you. I believe today that without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I am absolutely nothing. I cannot do anything to change the world in which I live. I have no hope beyond this life. But I know today that none of that is true. Because Jesus Christ became my Redeemer. And he gives me incredible hope. And his spirit now dwells in me. And I can be a part of the people of God changing this world. I invite you to know the same truth and the same hope. We're going to pray before we participate in communion. Maybe for some of you today, this is the first time you have heard the story of Jesus Christ. You come to church and we tell you what you ought to believe and we tell you about the things you ought to be doing. Maybe this is the first time, and I apologize if that's the case, because my greatest responsibility is to point people to Jesus Christ above everything else. But Maybe today it's the first time you've heard this, and maybe today it's the first time you realized how much God loves you and the incredible sacrifice he has offered to you. Maybe today you need to respond to his love by simply coming forward and even respond. I'm going to open up the altar. Maybe today you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you realize your need for Jesus Christ to be a part of your life. He offers that. The same power of God that was available to the people of God 2,000 years ago is available today. I'm not telling you that so that you'll be able to do cool magic tricks. That's not what Jesus was about. He was about the cross and redeeming all of humanity. I'm going to ask if you would to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. 
If there be one here today that would like to respond to the gift of God and to know this Jesus personally, as Margie plays this morning, I'm going to invite you to come and simply receive the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ alone can offer. He promises us that when we do that, that he will forgive us of our sins and he will give us a brand new start. He will make us new creations in him. As Margie plays, I'm going to invite you to come and then we'll have a time of prayer. Father, as we come before you today, we are absolutely grateful for your grace and your mercy and the love that you have extended to us. Lord, your whole story is a love story toward us. We come before you today recognizing that you've already demonstrated your love for us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. I pray that each individual in this room would truly be able to embrace this incredible love in a way that it changes the way we live our lives. I pray that we would have an incredible sense of peace knowing that this life is not all we have to look forward to, but that there will come a day when you will send your son, Jesus Christ, to return for us and that we will meet up with all those who have gone on before us and we will meet up with you in the air. And together we will be welcomed into your presence. Lord, I pray that each individual in this room would be able to declare openly that they are ready should that happen at any point. Father, I pray that you would work in us until that day comes. Help us never to become satisfied or content with where we are but I pray that you would give us a desire to know you more today than we did yesterday and to know you better tomorrow than we do today. Lord, I pray that every moment of our lives that we would be drawn even closer and closer to you, that you would bring within us the same power of God that transformed lives 2,000 years ago. I pray that you would transform our lives. Allow us to become a reflection of you. Pray that you would move within this group of people so that we could become the world changers you, create, you created us to be. Lord, I pray now as we prepare to participate in the celebration of the Last Supper, as you met with your disciples, you shared with them about the sacrifice that would take place. Lord, I pray that for each of us today, that we would be able to look at your sacrifice and to recognize what it means to us. Lord, thank you for your love. I know that these are ordinary elements, bread and grape juice, but they represent an incredible kind of love and sacrifice. May you be honored today as we participate in the celebration of your Last Supper. Help us today, not just in this service, but outside.
to live as those who have been redeemed by your blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've asked Tim, as one who was baptized earlier in the service, to come and he is going to help me serve communion to each of you. We're going to invite you to come. I'm not going to give a whole lot of instruction. I will say that it would be easier when you come out of your pew if you'll come out to the left side and then come back around, and that way you're not running into everybody. But we're just going to invite you to come. When you feel led to come and receive the elements of communion, we invite you to do so.